Thank you. Um, um, just in case you uh, might have been fooled by Jeremy's uh, giving me a title, he called me Dr. Mark Green. Um, I want you to know that no one has ever thought either that I would be a medical or doctor or smart enough to get a PhD. Um, but if you'd like to give me an honorary Keswick PhD, that would be absolutely fantastic. I know they're very valuable, these things. Um, well, um, yesterday we took a journey, didn't we, uh, from Genesis onwards to remind ourselves that to be created in God's image is to be created as vice regents, as representative rulers, as royalty, to exercise the authority given to us to bring shalom. We are created to seek and pray to bring Christ's kingdom shalom to the places we find ourselves, the people we meet, the task we do to the glory of God. We therefore participate, if you like, with Christ as we recognize what he came to do, uh, coming, if you like, Gloriously, not only the creator of all things, but the one who came to shed his blood that we might know peace and that God through him might bring peace to the whole universe. And we also noted that this, this notion of the, if you like, the comprehensive scope of Christ's work, embracing all things and therefore validating all human activity that is righteous and good, is not, is not the way that the church in the last 200 years has actually expressed what discipleship means. And we had a number of examples of that from school to everyday work and so on. The Great Divide, and I mentioned one resource that is online but also available called The Great Divide that looks at that. So today we, we're going to come to the question of how our vocation as people created in the image of God relates to our daily activities. Yesterday, we had a couple of examples of people whose eyes were opened, if you like, to the notion that wherever they go, wherever they go, God can work through them. So we had the example of Thelma, uh, you know, a young 93-year-old recognizing that her, her, her supermarket, her local supermarket, could be a context for her mission with God. And then we had Ed, uh, a bored 23-year-old factory worker, who suddenly realized that actually in that factory, though the work was dull, God had a role for him right where he was. And as I was coming off the, uh, off the platform yesterday, um, Sandy said to me, she was sitting there, she said, said to me, and you can do it in the gym too. So I said, tell me the story. So she told me the story. And she's now going to give us a short version of that. Please welcome Sandy. So, Hi. Sandy, tell us a story. Jim. Okay, God has an amazing sense of humour because I don't like going to the gym. Uh, but he put me in touch with a personal trainer, uh, a young man. And as we were doing this, doing that, he said, oh, you're really strong with your arms. So I said, well, it's because I put the church PA out every week, twice a week. Church, he says, is that a Christian church? Yes, said I. Oh, he said, I've been doing a lot of thinking about things like that. I've been um, doing lots of online courses, and he gave me a whole load of courses I didn't recognize. Uh, it's all about finding the God within. We've all got God within us. And I went, oh, and I had acts in my head, and Paul in Athens. So we talked about the living God. 
And I said, would you know, shall I tell you about Jesus? And over the weeks, we talked about Jesus. And every, every Thursday, I thought, oh, no, I've got to get the gym again. Because I've got to go, because I've got to talk to this chap. And he asked me lots and lots and lots of questions. Um, and in the end, I thought, I'm going to have to be really brave here. And I gave him a little card with the church times on. I said, oh, we've got a, um, an all-age service coming up. Why don't you come? Just come and listen. I mean, how daft would you be not to find out? You're doing all this work with all these different gurus from here and whatever you're talking to. Come and find out. And I got my whole church praying. We have a WhatsApp group on church. So I said, can you pray for this guy? I've asked him to church. And they prayed and some other friends prayed. And on the day he turned up, I couldn't believe it. I sing with the band. So he was out there and I was at the front had a little wave. And he not only came, but he brought his whole family with him. Now, I don't know if he's going to come back again, but he stayed. He had coffee. I'd primed my pastor who talked to him. And now what I've said to the chaps in church is, please, will you go to the gym? Please go to the gym, because I cannot do this on my own anymore. So, you know, what an amazing God we've got. Even at the gym, this guy who was really all over the place asking lots of questions but not knowing where to look for the answers. So, yeah, just keep your eyes open. Amen. Thank you very much, Sandy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, anywhere, really. um, Even at home, I was in a place called Glasgow. Some of you are familiar with it. And uh, I met this um, couple of people, and one of them came up to me after the end of the service and said, "Um, do you think I should do my Glasgow accent? What what do you think? (laughs) Because if I don't ask permission, then I get fired for cultural appropriation. Anyway, so my parents are both from Glasgow. So he comes up to me and he tells me this story. He, says, um, he tells me that actually he, um, he treats phone calls from mobile, mobile companies as opportunities to share Jesus. So somebody calls him up, usually from Bangalore, and says, do you have a mobile phone contract? And he says, yes, I do. And would you like to hear about Jesus? <laughs> So he talks to them about Jesus, and then he told me, and you know, I'm not even paying for the phone call. (laughs) Now that's not for everybody, because for most of us, it's enough already, but it's just interesting, isn't it, that for some people, that's that's the opportunity. Um, I'm not going to show this today. Um, I'm going to show you the film tomorrow. Well, not tomorrow, on Thursday. So why does your particular work matter to God? And before we get there, first two quick questions for you. How many people here this morning think that God, the king of the universe, cares what the Burberry company calls this fragrance? It's a fragrance for men. Uh, How many people think God cares about that? Just a quick show of hands. Okay. A few. And how many people think God cares what we call one of these? Now, Look at the difference. Look at the difference. Which one smells better? (laughs) Somebody say the elephant. (laughs) Well, we'll come to why that instinctively. Why do we instinctively think that God cares more about one than the other? What's the instinct going on there? What's what's going on there? So now I'm going to give you a very quick interview again. I'm afraid I'm going to force you to talk to each other so that we root this in our real worlds. We're looking at whatever you do during the day. You could be looking after nine children under seven. (laughs) You could be doing the dishes. You could be doing whatever you're doing. You could be in a workplace. You could be looking after grandkids. Whatever it is, what's your primary activity during the day? And I want you to tell people what that is, and then two things you like about that activity, 
and one thing you dislike. Okay, and you've got 60 seconds each. You may have to talk to somebody new. Uh, you may have to turn round. Okay. Okay, let me stop you there. So uh, the question before is, is, why does your particular work matter to God? Or to put it another way, how does your particular work fit in with God's mission in time and eternity, whatever that might be? I don't mean time and eternity, I mean your, your work, whatever that might be. And the good news about today is, um, is that um, we're going to find out whether housework matters to God. And the potential is that if it doesn't matter to God, why bother? So by the end of this time, you may never have to do housework again. <laughs> Praise the Lord, this could be one of those great moments, couldn't it? So why work matters. First of all, I'm going to do why work matters in general, and then we're going to drill down into why your particular work matters to God. And hopefully, um, there'll, be, there'll be some answers for you, whatever you do. So why work matters. So Paul is writing to a group of Christians in a smallish town, Colossae, in Asia Minor, um, Asia Minor and he says to them, Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever. What precisely has he left out? Well, nothing is the answer, thank you. (laughs) Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, it says in Colossians 3.17, and then when Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, work it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for people, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Well, I wonder who believes this verse is. You get a lot of hands at Keswick if you believe a Bible verse, don't you? That is a fairly sure bet. But, you know, it's, it's great to hear. But I have to tell you, and again, I don't want to project on any, any community here. But I have very rarely been in a church where those, though that verse is actually operationally true. That is that actually the cleaner has as much status, if you like, as the curate, where a builder would have as much status as a barrister. And part of that's the way the world operates, but it's also the way that, that in a sense, our community operates. We're, in a sense, conforming to the world completely inadvertently. Context here is important. It's not a reference to church work or evangelism or to teaching or to health care or to any of the jobs that we in the Christian community regard, if you like, as kosher. It's a clear statement about all forms of work. And Colossians 3.23, not, that's not the verse on the... That's Colossians 3.17, is actually written to slaves. It's addressed to slaves. This is absolutely revolutionary. Chris Wright says this is a revolutionary statement in the ancient ancient world. To say to a slave, first of all, that they're significant, but then that the stuff that they do is significant, is extraordinary. It's a clear statement about all forms of work. Do it with all your heart. And the Lord God, the King of the universe, would hardly ask us to do whatever we do with all of our heart if it were not of some significance to him, even if, actually, if we're honest, really? A load of washing? A widget? Just 
turning the can so that you can see the label straight on the shelf? Really? Really? See, work was, as you know, not the malicious malicious invention of some divine sadistic dictator working out how how he could make us miserable until we could go and play golf. It was given to us before the fall, and though, as we've heard, the fall has made everything more difficult, by the sweat of our brows often we'll eat our food, still it is part of the plan for each of us. And I wonder, indeed, during that time, you know, what do you like about work? What do you like about it? Well, actually, lots of people like quite a lot of things about what they do. People appreciate the opportunity to be creative. People appreciate the opportunity, you know, to achieve something. They like the relationships that they often have in work. They, they like problem solving or they like bringing about change or they actually some of us just like completing something. One of the great things I find about doing the lawn is that when you've done the lawn, you've done the lawn. <laughs> it, <laughs> that's, thank you, until next week. Yes, that's a very good point. So there's, there's joy in serving people, in blessing people, joy in earning money and so on, in earning money so you can provide, in earning money so you can give it away. But British culture, at least, I think, does encourage us to whinge about work. Now, I'm not saying many people's work, and today work is more and more difficult for more and more people. And if you know people in there, sort of between the age of 16 and 30, you'll know that. The difficulty of finding good work, the difficulty of finding work that's stable and steady and actually pays enough to, to, if you like, to have a decent life before you, it's getting more and more difficult for people. So I'm, not, I'm you know, it's not... I'm trying to pretend everything's easy. All kinds of things have been affected. But nevertheless, there's a danger that we fall into the notion that work is bad. Work is the thing that's getting in the way of me being a better friend, a better wife or husband, a better, a better deacon or elder if you have them, whatever it might be. But as we saw, work is the stewardship of resources, human and material, to the glory of, of a worker God and for the benefit of humankind. And it's important, isn't it? Our view of who God is shapes what we think is important. If God is a redeemer, we know that doing redeeming work is good. We're imitating him. Well, what do we, what's the first thing we learn about God? Well, the first thing we learn about God is that he creates, he does stuff. Five times in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God creates. Five times that he does It's full of verbs. This is a doer God. Plans, creates, reviews, finishes, appreciates. It's good. Here is God's performance appraisal form at the end of his first week of work. As you can see, day one, he gave himself a good. Day two, for some reason, he didn't fill it out. We'll have to talk to human resources about that. This is not right. And day three was good. Day four is good. Five is good. Day six is good. And actually, what do we get on day seven? What we get on day seven is very good, didn't we? That's what we got. Very good. So daily progress report, end of the week, great. End of project, very good. Now, it's interesting that to me. I, you know, God kind of appreciates. He kind of goes, that's a bit, that's a very un-English. I did a good job today. <laughs> I wonder if we allow ourselves that. I wonder if we allow ourselves ever to go, you know, actually, I did a good piece of work today. I really, that was a cracking shirt I ironed. 
look how it look what it looks like you know give you an example so you, you you've just done a report for for your boss say on uh, the consumption of decaffeinated coffee in Stoke and you say to yourself you know this was the I used to sell coffee so this this was probably the best report on the consumption of decaffeinated coffee in Stoke ever produced by anybody may well be the only one by the way <laughs> and you 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 come home and you wolf down a sandwich and you scurry off to home group and you walk through the door and say hey guys just want to tell you I just wrote the most fantastic report on the consumption of decaffeinated coffee on Stoke. Praise the Lord. Nobody's doing that, are they? Nobody's doing that. And in a way, it's a pity, isn't it? God just helped us to produce something good or something excellent. And I want to share it with people. (laughs) And somehow the culture doesn't let us do that. Because it's consigned, or our culture, because it's consigned this to something that we don't necessarily celebrate. We celebrate cakes without soggy bottoms. Cakes in general, whether they're soggy or not, frankly. Now, I came across recently this extraordinary verse in Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. Uh, I do commend James Robson's uh, work on Deuteronomy. And the book is in in the bookshop. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to. God has called the people together and he says, in the place that I'm going to send you, the place where you're going to come and worship my name, you're going to bring tithes and this is what I want you to do. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed it. What have they put their hand to? That's their daily work. What have they been doing? They've been looking after goats and sheep and getting, going across the desert and putting up tents and taking down tents, helping children do this, teaching people to do that. It's stuff. They're just doing stuff. And God is saying, rejoice about that when you go to Jerusalem, the place I'm going to put my name to worship me. In other words, but, you know, can you imagine? come into church and we all go, here's what I did this week, let's praise the Lord for that. It's interesting what, the worship, what, what worship contains when you look at it in the Old Testament. What worship contains when you actually look at David's Psalms and think, what is he talking to God about? And of course, uh, there are a number of pastors experimenting with this. Um, um, there's a thing called Plough Sunday. Some of you are familiar with if you're Anglicans, which is the second Sunday of the year. And in the olden days, and in some agricultural communities, perhaps still today, they used to bring a plough literally into the church. And the community would pray for the ploughing. Thank you, Lord, for the technology and pray for the ploughing of the fields because this was critical to the economy, to the survival of, of the village or the town. And they would dedicate not just the harvest, thank you, Lord, but the ploughing and then, Rogation Sunday, the sowing. So one Baptist, imagine a Baptist taking on an Anglican thing. Ecumenism has gone mad. And uh, so this is David Goodridge at Lymington Baptist when he was there, brought in a plough because his dad had an old one and for some reason never gave it away. So that's a plough. And then what they did was, they you can't really see this well, I'm sorry, but they got people to bring something that symbolized their daily activity and lay it on the altar before the Lord. 
and they would then dedicate that for the rest of the year. And there's all kinds of things up there. There's a UBS stick and there's a pile of marking. <laughs> well, they're not going to get in on Monday if it's still on church on Sunday either. Uh, you know, and then there was a camera lens and there was some Nordic walking sticks because for one person that was their place where they felt like they were, they were doing mission and so on and so forth. There was a pair of football boots. A, a guy, 12-year-old boy, brought his football boots because that's a place where I feel like in that football team, that's my mission field, that's where I do my stuff and so on. Very, very moving. Now, Colossians 3 also tells us that we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, this is not just... Uh, the promise of a bonus, uh, you know, in heaven. You know, you're going to get a reward. But it's a statement again about our status. See, when you're offered an inheritance, who do you get an inheritance from? You get an inheritance from the Father. And in the ancient world, only sons could inherit and slaves could not inherit anything unless a special document was developed for them, which sometimes happens. But very rare to say to every slave, you've got an inheritance. Oh my goodness, me, an inheritance? Again, what we see is this New Testament language is raising people up. It's mind-boggling. What they're being told is that they are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. So... The question is, as they would say in the Pentecostal church, amen, anybody? <laughs> so that still doesn't answer the question, why does your particular work matter to God? And that's where we're going now. So yesterday we saw that God created a context for human flourishing in the Garden of Delight, Eden. He's the creator of a context for human flourishing. God is love. So everything he does is an expression of that love. All his work expresses his love. He creates this context for shalom, peace with him, peace with other people, peace with the created order, and peace with oneself. All that contributes to shalom. What I want to suggest is that in God's working, we see five aspects of his work that contribute to these. I'm going to take you through all five, and as you go through, I want you to think about that daily activity that you just shared with somebody earlier on and think, does, do I do this? Or does, might what I do, might this activity allow me to do this in that way? So there are five of them. And uh, let's see how we get on. So we read in uh, Genesis 1 verse 2 that God's first action in a sense was to bring order out of chaos. Now the earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew words were tohu vavohu, which sounds like the wind, doesn't it? It sounds like emptiness. You're familiar with wind here, aren't you? Please do not let that be misunderstood. <laughs> now the earth was formless and empty, tova vohu. And this is the first signal that God, our Father, can sort out our mess. If he can sort out chaos, primeval chaos, he can sort our mess out, can't he? So we ask ourselves, how might your work, our work, bring order? How might it bring order? Well, I wonder what jobs bring order. Well, there are lots of jobs that bring order, and you probably do many of them. I'm not going to say they might be. That's a water pipe leaking. 
I know a plumber, his name is Valerie. He's a, a Bulgarian, he's, he's about six foot five, he's a big man. And uh, he, he, when he goes to the job, you know, normally when you call a plumber, it, things are not good. Often things are not good. And uh, you know, there's water running down the, down the side of the wall. We've had five floods in our house, down the side of the wall, through the ceiling, all this kind of stuff. And he always walks in smiling. And, and they say, what are you smiling for? He said, it's gonna be okay. See, a plumber is a bringer of peace and reassurance. And the good ones check other things, don't they, before they go to make sure there isn't something else going on. A bringer of peace. And our Lord provides, and you see that in Eden. How do you provide? Space, physical safety, you'll have some ideas. And how does your work bring joy? I wonder in what ways your work might bring joy. Uh, here's, here's, I don't know if you're familiar with one of these. This is a Solero from the Walls Ice Cream Company. Other, other ice creams are available. Um, you may not feel in great need of one of these today, but there you go. This, in my view, is one of the greatest confections known to humankind. It was uh, launched in 1994, and it is a beautiful combination of pineapple, peach, mango, passion fruit sorbet, and velvety vanilla ice cream. And it offers you three distinctive taste sensations. First of all, there is the outer satiny sorbet, 38% sorbet. It's at once tangy without being sour. It's enlivening, but also curiously soothing. It refreshes us on a hot day, cools the palate, the head, and the body. And as then you go from the, the sorbet into the combination, the swirls of of, of the sorbet and the ice cream, well, what happens then? Well, they set each other off, just as yellow and blue set each other off and actually make, make, make both colors more vibrant. So the tang and the velvety ice cream intensify those flavors into an intoxication of joy. And then the sorbet disappears, and you get just the velvety, lush vanilla ice cream, relaxing every muscle, unfurrowing every brow, blocking out the strains and pains of the day gone by. Now the point about this is that somebody invented that. They came up with that recipe and the technological uh, acumen required to bind sorbet to ice cream, it was a breakthrough at the time. And it's produced a great deal of joy, if only for me. <laughs> but the point is, and you see this in Psalm 104, where, you know, we're told that uh, God brings forth fruit from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. So it's wine to gladden the heart. Of course, he's not talking about intoxication here, but it gladdens the heart. Oil to make your faces shine. It's not just that you end up looking like Sicilian farmers. You know, with olive oil, wonderful glowing skin. It's actually make your face shine is about benevolence. The Lord make his face shine upon you. It, it gladdens you, it makes you more generous to other people and so on. And bread, and bread that sustains their hearts. It doesn't say sustains their physiological systems. A decent baguette or whatever, a nice bit of, you know, brown granary bread. Well, that actually is a joy. It's meant to be. It's not just fuel, is it? That's not who our God is. And of course, it can be simple. 
a scrambled egg on toast, lovely. And there's joy in some products like this one, this is FIFA. I mean, computer games can be addictive, but they can also bring great joy. And it may seem trivial to you, but I am, I am very grateful to the people who created a product that means that I do not ruin my parabolic nails when I'm scraping the lime scale off the taps. Thank you, Mr. Muscle. See, we do lots of things that make other people's lives easier. Don't we? And when we do that, sometimes people notice and it produces joy, gratitude. This is a thing called a tax form. And I think some of you are old enough to remember, certainly I can, at the time when the tax form was a complete nightmare. When I first started work 150 years ago, the tax form, all I had was a salary, but it took me hours to fill out this form, hours. And I remember one year going up, and I always put it off to the last moment because I absolutely hated to do it. All I had was a salary, really. And I was trudging up the stairs. You know, I said to my wife, see you in three days and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and half an hour Half an hour later, I come skipping down the stairs. I've done it, I've done it, I've done it. Fantastic, it's so simple now. Praise the Lord for whoever did that. And then one day I was teaching something called Executive Toolbox. One of you, uh, some of you may have been on that. I think one of you here has been. And somebody in the room said, I work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I know the guy who designed that form. That guy made my life a lot easier. He released me into other things. So there's joy. And then there's beauty. God produces beauty. Well, that looks pretty good. And uh, here's uh, Jeremy's other car. <laughs> and at a very simple level, you can create beauty in the way you lay biscuits out on a plate. This is um, one of the winners of the LICC biscuit layout competition. You jest, but we train all our people to do that. Actually, the person that we have now doesn't need training. She's absolutely brilliant at it. But I take pictures of these things. And it's interesting what happens when you lay the biscuits out nicely, isn't it? Even if you do, if you do that at home, what happens? Oh, that looks too good, too good to touch, too good to eat. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll notice that this one is branded with the LICC red dot in the middle. And then there is beauty in something like this. Here's... Ah, there's a little murmur of appreciation. I discovered yesterday that when I said, is there anyone here with a th you know, has a theology of math, that John Lennox, the professor of <laughs> mathematics at Oxford University, may have been in the tent. <laughs> Luckily, he didn't interrupt. <clears throat> I think he was on the site anyway. Now, this apparently is the most beautiful equation, according to mathematicians, and I'm not going to do this now. Um, but just to say that one of the reasons is that these numbers, pi you may recognize, it's a number which goes on forever. To infinite number of decimal spaces, and so does E, it's called Euler's number, and it also goes to an infinite number of decimal places. And I is an odd number, it's, it's odd in the sense that it's the square root of minus one. What does that even mean? It's what they call an irrational number. I understand that. <laughs> That's all I understand. It's irrational, makes no sense. And zero and one, well, they, actually, there are number systems that don't use zero. Could we do without it? There are some number systems, zero and one, that's all you've got. Well, indeed. Computer languages, zero, one, zero, one, and so on and so forth. But what happens with that is you've got these odd numbers, that two that go on forever, and one that's irrational, and yet 
this equation brings them all together in a harmony. And some mathematicians see that as God's redemption, really. These odd things that don't really fit somehow in this equation fit together into a perfect harmony. Well, and there's beauty um, in people who stop things getting ugly, like the good men of Hillingdon Council. And then finally, there's a release of potential. And sometimes that's easy. You take a seed, it turns into a little, little seedling, and then finally you get an apple. Fantastic. And uh, what can you do with this stuff? You're a shouty audience. What can you, anybody want to shout out what you can do with that stuff? Glass, yes. Here's one I made earlier. Anything else? Concrete, yes, concrete. Play place for kids. Will you accept sandcastles? Yeah, yeah. Very good, yes, playfulness indeed. Anything else? Computer chips. The world runs on sand. Silicon. So now I'm going to give you the opportunity to think about this for yourselves and share your discoveries with one or two people, um, in twos or threes, whatever seems comfortable to you. How does what you do bring order, provision, joy, beauty, release of potential? So I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. Have a go and see how many of you can get five out of five. Okay, let me see if, um, how we got on. Uh, as a matter of interest, um, let's, start at, let's start at the beginning, as it were. Um, who got one or more of those five? Fantastic. Who got two or more? Still doing very well. Who got three or more? Whoa, four or more? Five or more? <laughs> Wonderful. We'd like to do something we don't often do, but I'm going to give it a go, see whether it works. We're going to inv invite um, maybe two, three people. Would you like to share what you saw? Or would you like to share what somebody next to you saw and embarrass them? <laughs> so there's a double benefit there. Anyone? Anyone? Yes, thank you. We're going to have a mic, I think, for you. Here comes the mic. Here comes the mic. Zigazaga, zigazaga. Here comes the mic. Behind you. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, hello. Oh, no. <laughs> I like to hold it oh, myself. No, gonna... I move about. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's it. Got it? Right. Um, I came in late. Sorry? I came in late. You came in late? Yep. Came here very late. So I didn't hear the original questions or anything. And so I moved rows and three of us met uh, under different circumstances. Interesting. So just give me your five. Interesting form. conversation, but actually the order out of chaos was something I gave you yesterday, which was men's sheds. Not a Christian work at all, but bringing men and women together to actually create some order, them creating it, out of Christian influence in the day-to-day, -day, everyday mess of people's lives. So that's what I got from it. I don't know what they got from it. I know Very one good. got a lecture from me. But <laughs> bringing order into people's lives who then bring order into other people's lives. Thank you. Someone else? Yeah, right at the front. You'll be popular because you're right there. 
Okay, well, I, I do the highest level of uh, work, and namely, I'm an engineer. Very good. And um, I've got an engineering <laughs> company. Uh, slightly less than I thought. Anyway, um, but... Um, well, you're, you're complaining. I did, my, I did my Glasgow accent and didn't get a murmur. No. But um, <laughs> we, we, we discovered that the first thing about order is, is my wife would tell me that, that cleanliness in the engineering factory life is of such importance. And uh, so order is needed every day uh, to maintain good working practice and safety, etc. The next thing is provision. We provide salaries out of what we do, which yeah. is really important. Joy, because we make things, we're on the highest level of joy. That We actually make things, a completed product, shock absorbers, for example. And there's such joy in that. And then beauty, that anything that is made right generally looks right. And so in an engineering world, like a bridge over here, we saw the other day, a bridge which looks so beautiful, so functional. But beauty is connected to things that work. And in the release of potential, we have people called apprentices. And every guy in my factory has been trained. One came from a Land Rover factory who didn't know anything about engineering, really. Another guy was a wine seller. He's now an engineer. Another guy, he was a farmer. But now he can do the highest level of work, engineering. So we release potential in every person that comes into our factory. That was a propaganda announcement. <laughs> Marvellous. So uh, everyone's going to turn into engineers. Praise the Lord. Very good. Someone else? Perhaps someone who does housework. Yeah? Did you, was that a hand or were you just scratching your nose? You've got to be careful if you... No, no. <laughs> Anybody do housework? We're prepared to give us a five. I can't see that far back. Yes, right up, thank you very much. Right in the middle at the back. Who can get there first? I thank you, guys. Up. Yeah, there you go. She's opened arm to both of you, but... Thank you. Decided yeah. that my, my Do you main... want to stand up for us? <laughs> thank my, you. My main workplace is my home, and I guess my main job is... Housework. So I decided that housework brings order to my home. It provides a pleasant environment for people. It gives me joy because I don't like the mess. The beauty comes also in providing a welcoming environment that I hope people enjoy coming into and that my husband appreciates. Release of potential... Well, setting an example for my family, but I decided, actually, I could go out and get a job if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. Thank you. No, it's good. Yeah. That's right. Well, I think uh, that's very helpful. I think one of the things about housework, of course, is that usually a tidier room is a better-looking room <laughs> as well. It produces beauty that way. And also, when a house is done, I mean, obviously you want these, this thing can go too far, can't it? But actually, sometimes tightness releases potential just because there's nothing else I have to do before I do the thing I want to do. I know where the book is. I didn't fall over the shoes as I came in, through the door and so on. So there's a release of potential in, in the humans in, in, in the family as well. So the bad news, unfortunately, for your test, from your testimony is that we all have to do housework. So you're not very popular right now, I think. Uh, because actually it conforms with God's objectives. So lots of things like that. And of course, God's work brings him glory. The heavens decay are the glory of God. And here is a picture of D. 
deep space. It looks like a graphic designer did that, but a, somebody, the James Webb Telescope took a picture of that. That is deep, deep space. It's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? And God glorifying. There is almost nowhere where you cannot glorify God through your work. I tell you this, God's purpose through the things that we do. And of course, Jesus um, sustains things. Sorry, Jesus sustains things. He creates things. He maintains things. Lots of our work does that. He redeems things in all kinds of ways. But still, we might have a question of whether the little things that we do really matter and whether God really cares about the naming of things or anything like that. And the answer to that question, as it relates to our friend the elephant, is this, that yes, he does. And we have scriptural validation of this from Genesis 2, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man, at that point it was just the man, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So imagine this, that you have created the world, or a toucan, or a new recipe for orange and ginger and nettle cake. Do you let someone else name it? No. But look at God, he delegates. And when they actually come up with a boring name like elephant, I mean, he doesn't go, I don't think so. I mean, you can do better with nine-year-olds. I've done this with nine-year-olds. I've shown them a picture of an elephant and said, so, so come up with a name. You think, Master Blaster was one. You know, big ears, tusk head, all that kind of stuff. Notice in the text to see what he would name them. So the Lord God, the king of the universe, big place, the universe, comes down to see what this individual man is going to call these creatures. How is this person going to differentiate between one another, one and the other, using language? How's he going to do that? God is intensely interested in what he does. That is sometimes very difficult to believe, isn't it? Your particular work matters, not only for the ways in which it it brings shalom, not only for the ways in which it actually participates, if you like, with God's desire to create context for shalom for other people in his world and for all creation, but because you particularly matter. I think it's like a parent or an aunt or a godchild, godparent or just any, 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 any adult looking at a toddler's scrawls. I think we've all had this sort of experience. They appear, these toddler's scrawls, on fridges all over Britain, don't they, you know? Oh, my godchild did that. Isn't she absolutely brilliant? And you look at it because you are interested and you think, is this a Pablo Picasso I see before me? Or merely a Jackson Pollock? Or if, you've, you know, if you're a social scientist or a psychologist, you're looking and thinking, why is mummy in orange and daddy in black? Maybe it's because he's a rock musician. Who knows? Of course he's interested in you. He thought of us before the foundation of the earth. He's been waiting quite a long time for you to pop out. And then you can see what what are you going to do, he thinks, with your talents, your freedoms, your opportunities, your power, the resources that he gives you. So is he interested in the small things? Well, yes, because all the small things are an opportunity to do something with them in his way. So is God interested in what a cosmetics company calls a fragrance. Can I have a 
show of hands. How many people believe that? I'm still not doing very well. Just put your hand up, otherwise you'll fire me. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I think he is. And why? Because what we name something like a fragrance within our culture says something to us about how we regard the body, how we regard relationships, how we regard sensuality, how we regard sexuality. So, for example, you're thinking perhaps, you know, suppose you're a man, and about 47% of you are, so it shouldn't be too difficult. Suppose you're a man, and you're thinking, I'd like to buy my wife something uh, to express, or my girlfriend, or my whatever, to express my, my affection for her, my undying love for her, my belief that she is the star, the queen of my life. What am I going to do? So I go into, into Boots or to the fragrance counter department store, and what do I pick up? Poison by Dior. <laughs> what? <laughs> Darling. Now, you know and I know why they have names like this, but I've got, got to tell you, it's safer to go French. <laughs> j'adore, j'adore. And it's the same for blokes, you know, supposing you, you know, you're very fond of your, uh, your boyfriend or your spouse or your dad or whatever, and then you go in and you have a look and you, you think, oh, what am I going to buy them? Oh, yeah, what about this? Egoist. <laughs> Perfect, you're thinking. Actually, uh, in London, when this, this, this uh, fragrance was, was launched, with these big 48-sheet posters that they had for it, and uh, I assume this was a woman, had written on one of these posters, as if they need any more encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure boss is okay. <laughs> there was one young man told me that uh, on it, he had apparently quite a lot of uh, aftershaves and stuff, and he told me on his wedding day, he, he was looking at this array of things, and he was trying to make up his mind whether he would, he would put on Calvin Klein's Escape <laughs> or Calvin Klein's Eternity. Uh, he told me, at least, that he put on Eternity. So you see, it all does matter. And of course, we all know that the simplest thing can be offered infused with love or grace, or not. The simplest thing, the opening of a door, the saying thank you to somebody who just gave you a cup of coffee. The simplest thing can be done that way. And we've all experienced that if we've ever gone to a coffee shop, haven't we? The difference. We've all experienced perhaps if we've ever been sick and been treated by a nurse. Sometimes you can just tell the ones that really care about you and the ones that, well, don't really. Or maybe they've just had a really bad day and it's been 11 and a half hour shift. The simplest things. So in the office, in the home, on the factory floor, as well as in the church, it is Christ we're serving and we are grateful for work because it's an opportunity to serve him, to serve with him, and to serve others in the power of the Spirit. We do it with him, in him, and for him. And because it's Christ we're serving, it is a disciple, as someone learning to do this, learning to follow Christ in this activity at this time. So work does many things for us. It's an instrument God uses to uh, get things done, he wants done, and so on. Um, But it's also quite strategic missionally. And let me just have a couple of words on this before we stop. 
See, the thing is, not only, as we said yesterday, is it significant, because if our work doesn't count, then we are saying to people that 40% of your waking life doesn't count to God. Well, that, if 40% of my life doesn't count to God, what kind of God is this? Am I wasting lots of my time? It's vital for young people, but it's also vital for the way that we engage with others. Because, you see, somebody comes to the door with a package, and if you think their work is valuable to God, you treat them differently. You honor them differently. You know, in London, I remember one uh, tube employee, he wrote a book, actually, Tunnel Vision, it was called, um, and he wrote a book and he said, one day, somebody came up to me, he said, came up to me and said, good morning to me on the platform. I nearly fell, on, fell in front of a train, I was so shocked. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Because normally only, people only come up to ask for something or to complain. So, you know, actually it changes who we value and how we approach people. It also changes how we talk to people when they're thinking about a job. It gives us, when we're talking to somebody who's not a believer, oh, that's a very great job to do. You know, God can really, God, God loves plumbers. Why does he love plumbers? My plumber told me, he became a Christian at 50, that God created him to be a plumber. It's perfect for him. And it is. And he gets this, he says, this indescribable joy from it. I'm going, what? <laughs> but the Lord gives him this indescribable joy from it. We treat people differently. We have a different message for those people that we engage with. We're able to affirm them biblically for what they do. It changes how we talk to children when they're thinking, what GCSE do you want to do? Or your grandchildren, what A-level do you want to do? What degree do you want to do and why? Far too often, too many Christian children choose to, bec to become church-paid workers because they think it's a higher calling. Because it's a way to do something significant for God. One bishop told me, when we were talking about this, he, he's absolutely on board with this. He said, you know, you're right. In the last three weeks, he said, I've had three people in my office wanting to be, wanting to go forward for ordination. A wonderful thing to do if God is calling you to do that. So I asked them why. And they said, because I want to do something significant for God. Well, you already are. So this shifts the content of the gospel and the way we talk to non-believers the way we talk to children and grandchildren, the way we talk to one another about our work. And of course, there are other strategic values to it as well. But that's not for today. On Thursday, we're going to look at what constitutes fruitfulness in everyday life. And if you think I've been super excited um, yesterday and today, I'm going to be hyper excited on Thursday. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for coming. Jeremy is going to close us in prayer.